The following audio is a presentation from our Equip study series. In this series, Pastor Josh is walking us through the Lord's Prayer. Would you join us as we learn together in that deep dive of the Lord's Prayer so that we might pray more like Jesus has commanded us to pray? We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. All right, let's go ahead and get started. A minute late. I got some, some more pamphlets if you'd like one. They're up on the front row. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us for our Valentine's Day special. Tina said she canceled her reservations just for this plan. <laughs> hey, Dave. All right, well, let's, let's open up with some prayer. Let's pray part of the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful name and title that is. Lord, your name is to be worshipped and adored and exalted Lord, I pray that we would be in awe of who you are and what you've done. Lord, help us to behold you this evening. Lord, help us in our prayers to first start with worship of you. And Lord, we just ask that you be with us tonight as we continue through the Lord's Prayer. Lord, would you give us wisdom and help to understand and also help us in our own prayers. Lord, that we would grow more increasingly dependent upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, all right. So, um, again, I always like to start off with a little activity. So I'm going to give you about a minute, two minutes. There's a question on your pamphlet, and I just want you to write it out. So I want you to write it, and then the reason why. So what is something that inspires awe? for you. Something that hasn't maybe made your jaw drop. Um, And it doesn't have to be something having to do with Christianity, okay? Uh, Just it's something that is awe-inspiring. I want to give you, and and then why? Why is that? So I'm going to give you about a minute, two minutes to think through that and write your answer down. All right. Okay, so let's get some of your answers. What, what's something just in your life that has inspired awe in you? You can raise your hand. Breck? Yeah, anything specific in creation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, takes you by surprise too, right? That's kind of part of it, yeah. Yeah, I, when I think of something like that, I think my nature, yes, but specifically um, a few years back, me and my family went to Colorado, and we went to Rocky Mountain National Park. And, you know, I look at, I'll look out at the beach and be, you know, if I think about it, I can be in awe of that. But I, I think when, when we went there and you go up, I mean, it's like the highest highway in America. 
And so getting up there, you know, I'm just like white knuckled, like I'm not looking at anything. I'm just try- I can't see the road in front of you. You're just like looking up. <laughs> but once you get up there and you park and you look around, I mean, something is just, I got chills right now. Something is just incredible about that. It's something that, and, and part of it is I'm not familiar with that type of landscape, but something about seeing that Rocky Mountain range created just an awe. I mean, you're, you're just, your mouth is just dropping. You know, you're just amazed by something that you see, whether, whatever it is in nature, whatever it is that you wrote down. But we talk about and all, it's this, there's an emotion and a feeling attached to it. But when we, we overuse this word, and I, I definitely do, awesome, right? I had a professor in seminary who wouldn't let us use that word, awesome, because he said that we use it like flippantly all the time. And I get what he was saying, right? But when we talk about something that's truly awesome, when we behold something that we're not used to, it makes you, you're almost, it's a sense of reverence for the greatness, for the vastness, for the might of it, depending on what it is. And when we come to the prayer, the Lord's Prayer tonight, I hope, like one of my goals for us tonight, and we kind of started this journey in the last week with our Father in heaven. Um, Holy is your name. Hallowed is your name. But really tonight, even more so, I want us to dial down and drill down on and behold our great God. Because we pray all the time as Christians, which we should, but do we think about what we are doing when we come to God in prayer? Do we jump straight to what we need and want, or do we first acknowledge who this God is? Are we in awe? I'm not saying every time you come to prayer, you have to have goosebumps or something. But I, I think that if we come to prayer, and what Jesus does here is he starts the prayer directed with our relationship with God, our Father in heaven. We talked about that last week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so tonight is that verse 10. We're just covering verse 10 tonight. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I will admit to you, I do not have my finger on the pulse of cultural trends on social media, okay? Uh, But I do pick up some dumb trends sometimes on social media, and one of those showed up uh, on a reel, and it was this, and you you probably have all heard of this, or some of you maybe, and it was this, uh, I don't know, a girl or a wife, a girlfriend or a wife, video like, holding, like, uh, videoing her husband or boyfriend saying, hey, babe, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Raise your hand if you've heard this. Have you seen this trend? Raise your hand. Any, Mitchell? Yeah. That's it? No one else? How often do you think about the Roman Empire? It's weird. It's just a random question. But the social media is filled with these ladies asking their husbands or boyfriends in their life, hey, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And as it turns out, and they could be lying, I don't know. As it turns out, pretty much most of them say, like, all the time. (laughs) And my question to you, all right, men, so I'm going to do the stupid trend on you real quick. If you're a man in here, and be honest, don't lie, do you, how often, do you think about the Roman Empire once a week at least? Raise your hand if you do. Dennis does. Breck. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just a weird trend. But what's funny is that when I heard that, I was like, at first I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Because I was, I just, I was in the middle of a 180-something episode podcast on the history of Rome. And so I'm like, I'm thinking about it every day, you know, only because I'm listening to it. And anyway, and so I, I found that question really interesting because, you, you know, the Roman Empire, it's an empire, it's a kingdom. And I remember studying it or learning about it in sixth grade. And there's things about that kingdom and that empire that just stick with you and, you know, I think have an effect. I mean, I think a lot of the things we do today, you know, come from what the Romans did. And, and we're, I'm not just talking about the Roman Empire. It could be any empire, right? But, you know, the, these kingdoms, they have an impact on us. In some ways we know, in some ways we don't know. You know, um, for the Roman Empire, the reason why it's always on my mind, I think, is because of the movie Gladiator. I'm just always thinking about that movie. Not, yeah, it's a great movie, yeah. Yeah, and, and so you think about these gladiators and, you know, and all this stuff. And then also as Christians, we get in the New Testament and they're oppressed by the Roman government. And so we're kind of surrounded by it. But when we come to the Lord's Prayer, this kingdom that we learn about, this kingdom that we pray to come about, and we petition God for, is something that's all-encompassing for us. And it surpasses any earthly kingdom that we can think of. And so ju- just as way of, by way of reminder where, where we're at, you know, this prayer, if you're new, is situated within the Sermon on the Mount. It's the middle of the middle of the sermon, okay? It's the middle of chapter 6, and that's all on purpose. Matthew's placed it there on purpose, okay, because he's recording the sermon of Jesus, and Jesus is preaching, and kind of one of the main, we we talked about the themes at the beginning, we're not going to rehash all that, but what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking aim at the heart, okay? So he's, he's bringing up laws like anger. You've heard it said that from those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, and of course they would say, well, I haven't murdered, but Jesus turns it on them, the leaders and says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so he does the same thing with lust. You've heard that it's said, you shall not commit, commit adultery. Well, I haven't committed adultery, but Jesus says, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, in your heart, you have committed adultery. And what he's trying to get us to see is we are a whole person. We can't separate what we do externally from who we are internally. And so Jesus is taking aim at our heart when we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we talked about, you know, the ways in which he really points us out with giving. He says, hey, and and prayer, especially right before the Lord's Prayer, he says, hey, if you're going to pray, don't stand on the street corner and offer up these big words just so that you may be seen by others or heard by others right? Because we know that that's hypocrisy. It's this doubleness of person, right? Instead, he says, go to your father in secret. When you pray, he will hear you in secret. And again, it's not a prescription to say all your prayers have to be in secret. But what he, again, what is he doing? He's coming back to the heart. He's saying, why are you praying in front of people? Why are you doing it this way? And kind of the crux before we jump back into the Lord's Prayer, he says this right before in verse 8, do not be like them, talking about the hypocrites, those that are praying so that they may be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And that's the key. We have a Father who who already knows what you need before you ask. He can't be manipulated. He can't be controlled. Instead, when we come to God in prayer, He already knows what we need. He's, He's a loving and kind Father, a merciful and gracious Father to those who have trusted in His Son. And there's a relief there that when you come to God in prayer, you have this heavenly Father who knows what you need. And sometimes when you don't know what to pray, He knows what you need. But when we come to God in prayer, we're to be dependent. And then last week we covered our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy or consecrated is your name. Be your name. And then this next part, verse 10, is where we're going to jump in. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so just as an overview, if you're following along in your pamphlet there, these are your first blanks here. So just an overview of tonight. This is that second petition, okay? That first petition was our Father in heaven, holy be, may, holy be your name, hallowed be your name. This is the second one. All right, and the first part of this is the kingdom of God, and then after, and then we'll also cover the contrast, and then third, the petition itself, all in verse 10. But before we, we dive too deep into what we see in Matthew, it's important for us that, hey, this, the New Testament's not just written in a vacuum, okay? They have the Old Testament in mind. Matthew has the Old Testament in mind. Certainly Jesus when he's preaching, he's preaching to his hearers from the Old Testament. And so it's important for us to know what, what does he even mean by your kingdom come? Because we have ideas of what a kingdom is. I don't, I've never lived in a kingdom. I don't think any of you have. But you've read books, you've taken history classes, you know what you think a kingdom is. But we need to know what he's talking about when he says a kingdom. And the best way for us to do that is to look at the Old Testament. So let's look at the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. The idea of kingdom should capture not as much a spatial kingdom or a location as much as the idea of a reign, as your blanks, or sovereignty rather than a particular place. So when Jesus is talking about a kingdom, and there are places in the Old Testament where kingdom is referring to a particular place, but what Jesus is showing here, what Jesus is getting at, is a reign or a sovereignty. And we see this in several books throughout the Old Testament. And so you can think of it like this. The kingdom is not just a place. Because when I think of a kingdom, the first thing that comes to my head is this computer game called Age of Empires II. If you know, Ryle, you know about that. Age of Empires 2, I think it released in 1999, I think. And you build your own kingdom and you battle. You think of castle walls. Well, that VBS we did, was that last year? You think of like knights and all that. That's what I think of. I think of like medieval times when I think of kingdom, okay? But that's not really what Jesus is getting at here. Instead, you could think of something like, okay, Nick Saban, he's no longer the coach of the Crimson Tide. And so his reign of terror is at an end, okay? That's more of what he's getting at. He is no, the Alabama Crimson Tide, I, I believe, will no longer be reigning like they did in the 2010s, okay? And so it's, it's, it's talking more about a reign and a sovereignty, a rule, rather than just a 
particular place. And so the kingdom can be summarized into three areas. The first thing, and again, this is all coming from Old Testament, and we'll jump into Daniel here in a second. Uh, the first thing, uh, God is king of all the nations. And so you see in the Old Testament that God is, is this king of all the nations, okay? And so there's this broad landscape that he's created the world and the universe, and he is king over all things, over all nations. And, but you also see more specifically, God is king of Israel, of his people. He, he chooses a people for himself. He, he gives them a people, he gives them offspring, he gives them a place, eventually, in the Old Testament. And he blesses them, and he calls them his people. And third, you see God as a king whose dominion will be realized in the future. So what I mean by that is even in the Old Testament, it looks to a time when God's kingdom will be fully realized and come to earth. Not even now, even beyond us. So in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, it talks about God's kingdom coming, okay, even beyond us. And that was written thousands of years ago. But the most heavy concentration of heaven and earth, well, these, these ideas that we see in this verse, heaven and earth and kingdom, in all of Jewish literature is found in Jan Daniel chapters 2 through 7. Uh, you can turn there if you like. I didn't mark it, so it might take me a second. I've got to get my Bible drill on here. Daniel 2 through 7. Ezekiel. And we are in no way going to be able to cover Daniel 2 through 7, which could be a very daunting and confusing passage. And it's this glorious, this is glorious section of the Bible. And in fact, um, all of Daniel is written in Hebrew, except for the sections in chapter 2 through chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. So everything else is written in Hebrew, but this section is written in Aramaic, and, and a lot of times it's, it's believed that in Jewish tradition, this section would be distributed all around different peoples and different uh, tribes just to be read individually. But anyway, we look at Daniel 2 through 7, and we see this idea, which we find in the Lord's Prayer as well, of heaven and earth and a kingdom and we see that most because Daniel is right now, <clears throat> Israel and Judah, they've been, they've been exiled and they're under the rule of the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, I'm going to say King Neb. That's what we do at my house when we're, when we're teaching our kid, when we're teaching Gabby. We just say King Neb, okay? Um, and so King Neb is king and it, it's not a great time, but there's the, if you look in chapter two, and I'm just summarizing here, there's this prophecy of these four earthly kingdoms that come in progression. And it's this prophecy of, hey, one day these kingdoms are going to come, they're going to rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. And so you have this really robust view of kingdoms on earth rising and falling, the Persian kingdom, the Roman kingdom. And then you get to chapter four. And if you're following along with me, Chapter 4, verse 28. I'm going to read this. So this is King Neb. It says this, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residency and for the glory of my majesty? So what's happening? So this king of the earth, King Neb, is is promoting himself. He's saying, look what I have built for my glory and for my majesty. And then look what happens in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Again, there's that heaven language. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, so here it is, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long and e- as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. Very vivid imagery there, but it's, it's on purpose. This vivid imagery is showing, okay, Neb, King Neb thinks he's something. He's the king of the greatest empire known to man at that time. He's conquered Israel. But God humbles him and shows him who really the king is, who the real king is. And then you see in verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So he's crawling around like an ox eating grass. I mean, he's just been completely humbled by this great king who's in heaven. He said, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then there's this beautiful, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is a pagan king, okay? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to, the, to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, here it is, praise and extol the on- and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in, in pride, he is able to humble, as he just experienced. And so you get this massive view of the kingship of our God who is in heaven. And, and what we see in Daniel <coughs> in the Old Testament, but especially Daniel, is going to serve as the primary background for what the gospel writers are going to write about the kingdom to come, the kingdom of God to come. A commentator says this, Golden Gate says this, the theme that is central to Daniel as it is to no other book in the Old Testament, is the kingdom of God. And you see this quote also by J.J. Collins in your uh, pamphlet there. The whole book looks for the realization, okay, this, this consummation of the reign of the heavenly God on earth. And the purpose of God is to be realized on earth by the power of heaven. And so I, I read that, and I, I take us back to the Old Testament 
Because I want us to understand when, we, when Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that language is loaded with majesty and glory of the king, the God of the Old Testament. And it serves for us, before we even move back into the prayer, that when we come to the prayer, when we come to God in prayer, who it is that we are praying to. He is the God who is high and looks low. And we just saw how he humbled the greatest king, arguably the greatest king at that time. One that probably you would say is untouchable, but he humbles him. And it just shows this contrast of who God is compared to the kings of the earth. And so let's, let's come back to Matthew. And we ask ourselves, I, I would say this too, and I, this is in there, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but how can God be reigning even in the midst of oppressive earthly kings and kingdoms? How, how does God reign even if you're a part of a kingdom that is oppressive? And we look at the hearers of Matthew. They're under Roman oppression, okay? And you think not even just in the New Testament, but later on how Christians will be persecuted, Jews are, were per, have been persecuted all throughout history. You think of the Third Reich and Nazi Germany. How does God reign even in the midst of that? Would it be easy to say all this stuff's happening, that God isn't listening or God doesn't care, God's really not as powerful as he says he is? Well, no. He establishes kingdoms, but he also deposes them. We praise God for <laughs> Nazi Germany that they were destroyed, essentially. But it's something we even just saw in the Old Testament. You see these kingdoms rise up. God even raises these kingdoms to judge his own people. And so you see a God whose kingdom is he's reigning and he's sovereign over all things. But coming back to Matthew, like I said, Daniel being this primary background for Jesus' kingdom teaching in the Gospels. And <clears throat> but the kingdom in the Gospels is set against that of an earthly kingdom. Okay? So there's this contrast there. And, and an example of this, and we're about to we're about to get into this in our next point here, but we look at the Beatitudes, which is a chapter before this on the Sermon on the Mount. The very first Beatitude, I'm gonna read verse one of chapter five. Same sermon here. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you think of a kingdom, right, you think of something that, well, let me just ask you, when you think of an earthly kingdom, what do you think of? Temporary, yes. Good. What else? What was that? Greed. Greed, yeah. Can be unjust. And the reason is because it's contrasted with the king. Like when we think of someone, and we're in 1 Samuel, we'll get to this, but when the people wanted a king, that you know, Saul was, he was this, uh, 
Man, he was the man's man, you know? But when he was ready, and we'll, <laughs> I don't want a spoiler alert, but we read our Bibles all the time. But when, <laughs> but when they go to crown Saul or to, or to coronate him, he's hiding behind some barrels or something. You know, he's cowering. You know, because we, we think in our mind what a king should be. It's someone who's mighty, who maybe is well-spoken, who's someone maybe skilled in the art of war, all these things. But when you come to the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor, flourishing, the flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That turns everything upside down. The poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit? It's completely different than what we normally think of as a king. It's completely different of when we think of an earthly kingdom, even. And so, yeah, what we, what we often think of as a characteristic of earthly kingdom, like some, Rick, you said, it's temporary. Yeah, they don't last. We go back to the Roman Empire. They lasted 800 years, which is a long run. 800, maybe 1,000. It lasted a long time. That's a great run, but they're no more. Even us. I love America, and we're a democratic republic, but we've only been around for 200 years. Yeah, earthly kingdoms, they're going to fall eventually. And it stands in contrast with this heavenly kingdom that will never pass away. And to Jesus' hearers, when, he, when he's praying this, your kingdom come, you know, they're probably thinking, yes, from Daniel, but they're also living in a context where they're being oppressed by the Romans. And so what the Jews are probably thinking is they're, they've been waiting for this Savior to come and rescue them from these Roman oppressors. It's this king to come and deliver them politically and militarily from their oppression. But even Jesus' definition goes beyond that because, again, what does he say? Those that are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And something else the Jews are probably thinking of is they're, they're looking for an ethnic, an ethnically exclusive Jewish kingdom. But we know that Jesus comes, and that's not what he brings. He does, his kingdom is not limited to ethnicity. His kingdom includes every tribe, tongue, and nation who call upon the name of the Lord through their son, Jesus Christ. You know, the Jews, they rule their people. They're supposed to be different, but yet they rule their people. Even the leaders here, they rule their people just like the pagans rule their own people. But this heavenly kingdom stands in stark contrast to this. And these are your next blanks here. What are the characteristics of this heavenly kingdom? The kingdom is inaugurated with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. <clears throat> so when Jesus comes with his life, I love, man, I can't get enough of Matthew chapter 1. I love, by the way, Matthew's my favorite book of the Bible. I'll say it. Okay, I don't mind. Um, but I love the very first verse because all those years of waiting and then first verse, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, this king has come. And this kingdom has been inaugurated. It's, it's began. And it starts with his life, death, and resurrection. He doesn't come to overthrow the Roman government in the way the Jewish people wanted him to come. Instead, he comes 
and he serves the least of these. He comes and he preaches the sermon against these Jewish scribes and Pharisees whose hearts are far from God. Number two, this kingdom will one day replace the earthly kingdoms. So again, we're contrasting. This is that, um, like Rick said, earthly kingdoms we think of, they're temporary. Even though like you might live and die under one kingdom, but in the grand scheme of the history of the world, they're very temporary. But one day, this kingdom, although it's been inaugurated with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, one day, these, all the earthly kingdoms, they'll be replaced with the reign and rule of our God in heaven. And three, I mentioned this. This is not an ethnic kingdom. It is a kingdom whose subjects are those who trust in Christ and obey God and his will. Those whosoever wills, those who have trusted in Christ, those are part of the kingdom of God. Not the most impressive people, but no, it's, it's a dependent, poor in spirit people that are wholly trusting in God's Son. So next here, what is Jesus actually asking here? What is, what is Jesus asking for in this petition? There are three parts to this uh, request, and we, we've read it several times already, and I'm just, we just really want to hopefully have this thing memorized by the time we're done, but you could probably guess those next three things. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, that this kingdom, which we know is loaded with this meaning, this majesty of God, this God, our Father who is in heaven, may the, your kingdom come, but not only that, but your will, may that be done on earth as it is in heaven, which implies that things on earth are not as they should be, Right? Because sin is into the world, we live in a broken world. And so it's a good thing to pray for your will, Lord, to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jonathan Pennington says this, Jesus' disciples are to pray for God's name to be revered. His purposes to be accomplished and his kingdom to come all things which are realities in the heavenly realm, but need, but need yet to happen fully in the earthly realm. So even though we've, we've gotten portions of this, Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he's resurrected. We see how he's working. It's not fully realized yet. And so we live right now, you've probably heard this phrase, this is your next blank. We live and we pray in the already, not yet. Okay, the already not yet. And again, it's, it's this time in between where Jesus has come, the kingdom has been inaugurated, yet we're still waiting on his return for him and to come and fulfill and realize all things, for his kingdom to be complete and fully realized. We're in this between time, and we live here, and we also pray in this as well. What's helpful is Jesus, he helps us to pray this way in, in chapter 6, verse 33. When he's saying, don't be anxious about what you'll wear, what you'll drink, what you'll eat. 
What does he say in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The, what Jesus is helping us do there, he's helping us orient, he's start, helping us start our prayers, not with ourselves, but instead orienting our prayers towards God and his kingdom and his will, so that then the prayer after is formed by those realities. Instead of just jumping in and, and, and asking for things, if we realize, just like Jesus takes us through here in this model prayer, who we're speaking to, and we get this big view of this kingdom, it gets us outside of just ourselves and what we have going on, and we realize what God is doing in the world when we think, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it puts us rightly in history as we're, we're specks. We are part of history, but it's not our narrative that we're living. We're living in the story of the gospel. And it puts us rightly in there and gives us that perspective. So that when we continue to pray, all of our requests can be informed by seeking first the, right, the kingdom of God. If we're seeking that first, that forms how we pray the rest. Brett Rail, who's a missionary... Uh, he's planting churches. Um, I don't know what country. Uh, when I was reading this, I, I think they did that on purpose, but he said it's the most unreached um, place in the world. He divides this application into three applications of, of seeking first the kingdom of God, of praying for your kingdom to come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First, and again, it helps us understand what exactly, when we, when we say we're praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, what it help, he's helping us understand what exactly is it we're praying for. That first blank is against, we're praying against the kingdom of darkness. And guys, I, I really want us to understand this as we're trying to get this, because we're going to really drill down in the next couple weeks on specific things having to do with ourselves personally and, and, and relationally with others. But when we're trying to get this vision of what God is doing in the world, that there are people, and I know we know this, but we need to be constantly aware, and Jesus starts his prayer with this, we know that there is a kingdom of darkness and that there are peoples who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whole people groups, millions, billions of people, who are still under the slavery of sin and darkness. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that God would shine a light into that darkness and break those chains of slavery. That he would send his gospel to those people so that his name would be known. So we pray against this kingdom of darkness in the world. But only that, number two, to advance the kingdom of grace. And we, we already enjoy this in the church. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have been shown grace, and we want others to know that grace. And we want to be able to see what Jesus has done for us on the cross and the grace he's shown us and extend that to one another. Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He wrote like a 400-page book on the Lord's Prayer. Um, he says this about the kingdom of grace, because when grace comes, there is a kingly government set up in the soul. So it's, 
a kingly, I love how he picks up on that kingdom language in your soul. Grace rules the will and affections and brings the whole man in subjection to Christ. It kings it in the soul, sways the scepter, subdues mutinous lust, and keeps the soul in spiritual decorum. It's this grace that keeps us. And he says it so beautifully that the whole, our whole, he, he, I like how he points this out, the whole man is in subjection to Christ. And we want that to advance to one another and to the ends of the earth. So against the king, we praying against the kingdom of darkness to advance the kingdom of grace. And third, to hasten the kingdom of glory. Because one day Christ will return and he will complete and realize all things. All things will be made new. And his kingdom will be consummated. And it will be glorious. We don't have words to describe how glorious it will be. The Bible does. That's helpful. But we look, when we say for, when we pray these things, or when we pray for the kingdom to come, we're also looking forward to that kingdom that is coming. And finally there, we pray for God's will to be done. We are, or sorry, when we pray for God's will to be done, we're also praying for us to actively or passively obey God. And so, you say, we, we got that kingdom part done. We're praying for your will to be done. Already it's, it's, it's as it should be in heaven. We're praying for it to be done on earth as well. What are we saying? We're, we're asking that he would help us actively obey his commands that we find in his word. Because if we are part of God's family, we are going to obey his commands, but not only actively pursue and obey the commands of God, which lead to flourishing. They're not, they're not rules that are meant to weigh us down. No, his commands lead us into flourishing in this life. But not only actively, but passively obey. Meaning that there's things in life that are going to come a upon us, whether it be suffering and afflictions, are we depending upon him? Are we trusting him? And when we pray these things, we're orienting ourselves back to that. Thomas Watson says it again here, afflictions, this is kind of crazy. When I first read it, I was like, I wouldn't put it like that, but then I think he's right. Afflictions make us happy as they are a means of bringing us nearer to God. The lodestone of prosperity does not draw us so near to God as the cause of affliction. When the prodigal was pinched with need, he said, I will arise and go to my father, Luke 15, 18. As the deluge brought the dove to the ark, the floods of sorrow make us hasten to Christ, our ark. What is he saying? He's saying affliction and suffering have a way of drawing us near to God that prosperity doesn't. Why? It's because when we are afflicted and when we are suffering, we fully feel and realize the weight of our need for this king, for this God, and for his will to be done. It helps us rely and trust fully on him. And, and it, it does it more so than prosperity. And again, that's not to say that we don't praise God when things are going well, of course. And I, I never would pray, Lord, Lord, please afflict me. Like, I don't think that's something we pray. 
But we do know that in this life, because we're followers of Christ and because we live in a sinful, dark world, that afflictions and suffering are going to happen. But instead of saying, oh, those things aren't God's will, which is what the prosperity false gospel would say, oh, if, if you're poor or if you're sick, you're not doing God's will, you're not, no, 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 no. Instead, it's meant to draw us nearer to God, to depend upon him. Because like we said at the beginning, what is prayer for? Prayer is for us to help us depend and to trust in God, even as we ask. This petition, this last, this last one, the verse, or, sorry, the second one that we've covered tonight, is to help us rightly orient our hearts and minds towards God so that we can begin our prayers, so we can begin our prayers in awe and reverence of God before we ask of things. And it's no mistake. You know, th- this prayer, is a, it's a model prayer. You see how he's going to go through different sections. I think we're all familiar with it. But notice how Jesus starts with addressing God. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may, you, may we behold you first. May we seek your kingdom. May we seek your will to be done. Would you transform us before I start asking for my daily bread to forgive us our debts or whatever it is that we're going through? And it's just a model for us. I mean, I hope we realize that as we're about to pray in here in a second, and Dan's going to come up and lead us in a song, when we pray, do we realize who it is we're praying to and the weight of glory and majesty in these words of Father in heaven, of a kingdom, of his will in earth as it is and on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond by singing. And we're going to the reason I like this song is because 95% of it is just the words out of this prayer. I don't know, is Dan here? Oh, there you are. Okay. So let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you for your great name. We thank you for your kingdom. For you are full of glory and majesty and power. Lord, you are transcendent. Yet, Lord, you are near to us. You care for us. Lord, help us to be in awe of you. Help help us to realize who you are so that we'll be constantly coming back to you in prayer. Because we know, Lord, that you are the only one we can depend upon. Lord, let us trust in you. Lord, we pray tonight, just as this Lord's Prayer, just as you prayed, your son prayed here in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for your will to be done, that, Lord, you would crush the powers of darkness in all the nations, Lord, and that you would let your truth and light be shown to those who do not know you, and, Lord, that you would save a people for yourself so that your name, the name of the name of the king lord that it would be known throughout all the earth lord would you help us depend upon you lord let us not to seek let us not seek to do our own will 
Instead, Lord, let us follow you and trust you in everything. And Lord, we look forward to that day when your kingdom will be consummated and Lord, we will be with you. But even, but as we live now, Lord, help us to live in dependence and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.